The following resources from Two Journeys. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God. Please visit twojourneys.org for more resources. You know, I take uh, very seriously the call that I have to teach the Word, to stand up in front of people and talk like this. I, I'm staggered sometimes by the number of hours that I spend in front of people talking. And so I constantly feel a sense of dependence on God to keep me from saying anything that would bring him shame or would dishonor him or would be false to the doctrine and the teaching that he's committed to me. And I think that he does protect me from my own weakness, but I do pray this, and it's not a light prayer that I pray. I remember when I was preaching in Washington, D.C. once, I was preaching from Daniel 6, and I preached on Daniel as an example of a godly magistrate. And I made the statement there, forgetting where I was, that politics is messy business. And uh, given the fact that probably three-quarters of the people listening to me were in that messy business, um, I realized later I should have been a little more cautious or careful in what I said. Maybe something like this, politics can be messy business, that kind of thing. Giving an out, and of course all the Christians would walk through that out, and, and the way they do politics and the way they're involved is neat and clean and tidy. But what I had in mind, I stand with, although I should have been a little more guarded or cautious in the way I said it, is that when you're involved in politics, you're involved in the art of compromise, aren't you? You have to find a way to get the thing you really want and give up other things that aren't as important to you. So you have to make a kind of a hierarchy of priorities and, and trade the other ones to get the one you want. God never does this. Never. And in this way, I think it must be very difficult for Christians that are involved in all of the things that are on their list are vital and important, and it's hard for them, I'm sure, to know which ones. And I'm grateful that there are godly people up there that are working that through. Now, when I talk about compromise, realize I'm not talking about things that don't matter. You know, when it says that each of us should put others' interests ahead of our own, we're in that way said to be compromising, I suppose, but they're not really things that matter. They're just personal preferences, what to do with an afternoon or an evening or how best to go about something. And these things we're supposed to be compromising on or yielding all the time because their own personal preferences are not mandated by the Scriptures. But in these matters of doctrine, of conviction, God never compromises on any of them, and he calls us to be absolutely unyielding on them. Completely unyielding. Remember the movie Chariots of Fire? Remember how um, Eric Little's uh, father and uncle were saying to them, whatever you do, do it with all your might for the glory of God. God has given you this gift of running. Run to his glory and don't compromise. Remember that compromise is the language of the devil. So I started thinking about that in terms of the, the scriptures we're going to look at tonight. Because I'm going to trace out the theme of how Pharaoh begins to try to compromise with God. To try to dicker with him. And he doesn't get anywhere, does he? Because Moses won't yield an inch. And Pharaoh's going to try three things to try to wriggle around what God is calling him to do. We're going to trace this out while continuing to try to go uh, section by section. Uh, but we, we're going to see the first compromise in Exodus chapter 8. Beginning at verse 20, we see the plague of the flies. Then the Lord said to Moses, Get up early in the morning and confront Pharaoh as he goes to the water. 
and say to him, this is what the Lord says. Let my people go so that they may worship me. If you do not let my people go, I will send swarms of flies on you and your officials, on your people, and into your houses. The houses of the Egyptians will be full of flies and even the ground where they are. But on that day I will deal differently with the land of Goshen where my people live. No swarms of flies will be there so that you will know that I, the Lord, am in this land. I will make a distinction between my people and your people. This miraculous sign will occur tomorrow. And the Lord did this. Dense swarms of flies poured into Pharaoh's palace and into the houses of his officials. And throughout Egypt, the land was ruined by the flies. Then Pharaoh summoned Moses and Aaron and said, Go sacrifice to your God here in the land. But Moses said that would not be right. The sacrifices we offer to the Lord our God would be detestable to the Egyptians. And if we offer sacrifices that are detestable in their eyes, will they not stone us? We must take a three-day journey into the desert to offer sacrifices to the Lord our God as he commands us. Pharaoh said, I will let you go to offer the sacrifices to the Lord your God in the desert, but you must not go very far. Now pray for me. Moses answered, as soon as I leave, uh, I will pray to the Lord, and tomorrow the flies will leave Pharaoh and his officials and his people. Only be sure that Pharaoh does not act deceitfully again by not letting the people go to offer sacrifices to the Lord. Then Moses left Pharaoh and prayed to the Lord, and the Lord did what Moses asked. The flies left Pharaoh and his officials and his people. Not a fly remained. But this time also Pharaoh hardened his heart and would not let the people go. Stop there. So we see this, uh, the first evidence of compromise. And it has to do with the location, the place where the worship would occur. Pharaoh is trying to dicker with God at this point, trying to negotiate. Now, the context here is the fourth plague, the plague of flies. Now, I had to go to Africa to see a swarm of flies, perhaps similar but not in intensity, uh, that's described here. I remember um, these dense clouds of flies that would fly everywhere. Uh, and it was very, very difficult. Scott's nodding. He knows what I'm talking about. They were especially tied around, shall I put it delicately, the facilities. And it was difficult enough so that we learned not to go in the heat of the day. You went later in the evening because the flies were so terrible. Look, I can't imagine what it must have been like to have clouds of flies everywhere throughout Egypt. Uh, except, of course, where the Jews were, as he makes a distinction. Now, obviously, this is a terrible plague. Flies everywhere, crawling on your hair, in your eyes, in your soup, everywhere. And so Pharaoh obviously is moved, persuaded by this, and he says, okay, you brought me to the bargaining table. It's time to start looking at this, you and I. It's time for us to start kind of giving and taking. And with all good negotiations, I'm going to give a little and you're going to give a little. And so I'll let you go, but... You have to sacrifice here in the land. We'll do this sacrifice thing and then get back to work as he intended. So let's, uh, let's see if we can compromise on the matter of place. And so in verse uh, 25, Pharaoh summons Moses and Aaron and says, Go sacrifice to your God here in the land. But that's not what God had said. He said that they had to take a three-day journey into the desert to sacrifice to the Lord. Now, I covered when I first mentioned this command why God doesn't unfold his whole mind here, namely that he is bringing the Jews out permanently 
from Egypt into the promised land. He doesn't unfold this to Pharaoh at this point. In the end, it becomes moot because they drive them out and never want to see them again. By the time we hit the 10th plague, they're finished with Egypt forever. But I said at the time when I first brought up this topic that I think it's to expose the hardness of Pharaoh's heart all the more because he wouldn't even accede to this simple request. He would never have let them go all the way to the promised land. And so the initial request or command was let my people go for a three-day journey into the desert so they may offer sacrifices to me. And so Pharaoh comes to the bargaining table, so he believes, and says, uh, let's dicker on the matter of place, the location. They can sacrifice, but they have to do it here in the land. Moses responds, that would not be right. The sacrifices we offer to the Lord our God would be detestable to the Egyptians. Now earlier in the uh, Genesis account, you remember that... Um, Joseph said about the same thing, that shepherds and the keeper of livestock are detestable to the Egyptians. So this is apparently a consistent theme. The Egyptian has, Egyptians had a sense of cleanliness and separation from this the kind of profession, uh, shepherds, livestock, and all this. And so for them to just, even worse, be butchering animals and slaughtering them, this was detestable. And so Moses was speaking right. Of course, it's only part of the truth. The bigger problem is what would God think? Isn't that the bigger issue? Because God hasn't commanded this. He's commanded a three-day journey. And if they were to compromise, then they would be liable for the same plagues and the same uh, approach from God, the same judgment from God that Pharaoh would for breaking God's word. That's the real issue here, is that God himself has commanded a three-day journey. And so he says, if we offer sacrifices, will they not stone us? We must take a three-day journey into the desert to offer sacrifices to the Lord our God. And here's the issue, as he commands us. Moses hasn't forgotten this, not at all. But clearly the command of God means nothing to Pharaoh. Nothing. And so he's trying to show him at least something that he might understand. But uh, this is not going to work. And so he tries to compromise. And then Pharaoh says in verse 28, I will let you go to offer sacrifice to the Lord your God in the desert, but uh, you must not go very far. Now pray for me. So, uh, all right, fine. Uh, I'll have to give a little, you give a little. So... We're not going to do the three-day journey. Maybe how about a one-day journey into the desert? Now quickly pray for me. So Moses says, all right, I'll pray for you. As soon as I leave you, I'll pray to the Lord, and tomorrow the flies will leave. But be sure you don't act deceitfully with me and change your mind again. We are not going to go very far. We're going to go exactly as far as God commands us to go, and that's a three-day journey. Now, Moses, how can you be so rigid? Here's a man who's clearly willing to talk. He's willing to yield a little bit, willing to give a little bit. How can you be so rigid? Well, you can't be a man of God. You can't be a messenger from the Lord and do this kind of compromise. You can't. If I were a servant of man, said Paul, how would I be a servant of Christ? It's not possible for me to make this kind of compromise. And so God has chosen the right instrument, Moses, and he's not going to yield an instant. And so he prays. And the flies leave, but in verse 32, Pharaoh again hardens his heart, and he won't let them go even for the short distance into the desert he had in mind. Compromise number one, therefore, was on the issue of place. The second compromise is in chapter 10. Turn over in chapter 10, if you would. And look at verses uh, 8 through 11. This is in the context of the plague of locusts. The locusts have come and they're eating every living thing that's around. Everything is getting munched and chomped and uh, Pharaoh's officials come to him in verse 7 and says, How long will this man be a snare to us? Let the people go so that they may worship the Lord your, their God. 
do you not yet realize that Egypt is ruined? Actually, it seems in the account Egypt is ruined over and over and over again. I mean, it's ruined by the flies and it's ruined by the hail and it's ruined by the locusts. It's just, uh, you wonder if there must have been perhaps some time for Egypt to regenerate between these, these things so that the impact was just as strong, this waves of devastation rolling over them. But the locusts were very thorough and there was just nothing green left by the time they got done. Verse 8, then Moses and Aaron were brought back to Pharaoh. Go worship the Lord your God, he said. But just who will be going? All right, so what are we getting in now? First, we dealt with the issue of place. The second, the issue of people. Who is it that's going to do the worshiping this time? So I couldn't get anywhere with the location thing. Let's try who's going to go on this. Who will be going? Verse 9, Moses answered, We will go with our young and our old, with our sons and daughters, with our flocks and herds, because we are to celebrate a festival to the Lord. That's a pretty thorough answer, isn't it? And there's no wiggle room in there. Uh, who will be going? Everybody. This is a, a good way. Young, old, male, female. You know, everybody's going. All of us. And we're bringing all of our flocks and herds. Everything is going. We're, we're, we're going to worship and offer a festival to the Lord our God. Everybody is going to celebrate the festival. Verse 10, Pharaoh said, the Lord be with you if I let you go along with your women and your children. Now, it's hard to get the emotion in this. Basically, he's cursing them, I think, at this point. He answers with anger and with passion. Clearly, you are bent on evil. No, have only the men go and worship the Lord, since that's what you have been asking for. Then Moses and Aaron were driven out of Pharaoh's presence. So clearly, there's a great deal of anger and passion here. What is Pharaoh working on? Well, he's working on the people. He tried first the place. Now he's trying to compromise on the issue of the people. Who's going to go? Only the men are going to go. Well, not so, actually. The Lord has commanded that the men and women, the young and old, all of us together will worship the Lord. No one will be left behind. Now, what is Pharaoh getting at? Well, he knows very well if they leave their women and children behind, they're coming back. It's very much like communist countries do these days where they let uh, somebody go to study or, or compete, let's say, as an athlete in another country, but they hold their families close by in some of the finest hotels in Moscow, let's say, back in the 80s or 70s. You know, and uh, you know, just keep an eye on them. Well, everybody knew what was going on. Those athletes and those scientists and all that were going to be coming back as long as the families were held. It was a very rare individual that would harden his heart against his wife and children and not come back. And so Pharaoh, I think, is seeking to uh, ensure that he's going to get his slaves back. God obviously has a different agenda. He wants the entire group going out. And this is also, interestingly, as you look at, at the history of our own country, one of the major differences between the English settlers and those from other nations in Europe, namely the Spanish, the French, the Dutch, and others. The English from the beginning brought their wives and children. And what they meant to do was they meant to settle there for good. And so it was a sense of the family unity and a sense, I think, ultimately, of fulfilling the commission that God had given to Adam and Eve from the very beginning, to fill the earth, subdue it, rule over it. And so the women, the children, the families were going to stay together so that eventually, as you well know, uh, they could uh, populate the promised land. That was what God had in mind. And so there would be no dividing of the families. And so the second compromise uh, has to do with people. The third compromise is later in the same chapter, verse 24. This is in the context of the plague of darkness. The Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand toward the sky so that darkness will spread out over Egypt, a darkness that can be felt. So Moses stretched out his hand toward the sky and total darkness covered all Egypt for three days. 
No one could see anyone else or leave his place for three days. Yet all the Israelites had lights in the places where they lived. Then Pharaoh summoned Moses and said, Go, worship the Lord. Even your women and children may go with you. Only leave your flocks and herds behind. Pharaoh doesn't get it, does he? He doesn't understand. He still thinks that he and God are on equal footing. That they're, they're bargaining here. And he says, well, I'll I tell you what. I'm willing to yield even on the issue of place and people. Now we're going to work on possessions. Why don't you leave your flocks behind? Compromise, he says. <laughs> but Moses said, and I love this, you must allow us to have sacrifices and burnt offerings to present to the Lord our God. Our livestock, too, must go with us. Not a hoof is to be left behind. Don't you love that? We're not leaving anything behind. I get the sense that Moses knows who's in the driver's seat here, right? Isn't it obvious? Pharaoh doesn't have a leg to stand on. He has no power. He's way over his head. He's out of his depth. Or else he wouldn't even be talking to Moses. This is no negotiation. This is a command from the living God. And you either obey or you suffer the consequences. That's all. And so there will be absolute, total, complete compliance to the word of God. Not a hoof is to be left behind. Our livestock, too, must go with us. Not a hoof is to be left behind. We have to use some of them in worshiping the Lord our God. And until we get there, we will not know what we are to use to worship the Lord. Verse 27, but the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he was not willing to let them go. Pharaoh said to Moses, get out of my sight. Make sure you do not appear before me again. The day you see my face, you will die. Just as you say, Moses replied, I will never appear before you again. And what follows is the plague on the firstborn. Now here we've been tracing out just a simple theme. And that is the compromises that Pharaoh sought to make with God. The fact of the matter is God isn't yielding an inch. God has a perfect plan. And that perfect plan doesn't just include the headings on his plan, but the details under and the subpoints and the sub-subpoints. Each one of those aspects of his plan is essential to his final glory. And he's not going to yield on anything. His hand is stretched out, and who can turn it back? He's thought through absolutely everything. And when he says, this is how it's to be, he's not going to yield or give because then he would be relinquishing on the perfection of his plan, on his glory and on his goodness. And he's not going to do that. Sometimes I think we misunderstand when we go to God in prayer. We think, well, Lord, we know you've got the big picture figured out, but how about these details? Some of these details might be better if we did this or if we did that. I have my eye or my heart set on this detail here. So if it wouldn't revert or unvert or whatever your eternal plan would you mind doing this as well do you not think that god has also covered that detail with his mind with his perfection of course he has the real issue is lord this is my heart this is what i want this is what i desire but let your will be done not mine may your will be done would you want anything anything at all in your life that god has thought through and rejected for you would you I wouldn't. And so we don't want God to compromise with us and he won't compromise. That's not what prayer is. We don't come to God and get him to yield or compromise, bring him to the bargaining table. Well, I'll do this if you'll do that for me. Not at all. Rather, we are the ones that need to yield to the word of God, that we would submit our hearts to him. Now, the next time that we get together, we're going to be looking in detail on the issue of the hardening of Pharaoh's heart. I was going to begin touching on it tonight, but that would actually do you a great disservice. 
The hardening of Pharaoh's heart, which we're going to consider in, in um, Genesis, or Exodus chapter 9, coupled with Romans chapter 9, is one of the hardest doctrines in the Bible that you could ever study. We've been kind of mentioning it up to this point. We've seen it even tonight, even here at the end with the third compromise, when uh, he says, not a hoof will be left behind. The very next verse is, the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart. And he gave him a, uh, an angry answer leading directly to the plague on the firstborn. And so next time, with God's help, we're going to look into the nature of God, the nature of his eternal plan, and how it is that he actually can move out, stretch out his hand and harden uh, Pharaoh's heart, and how Pharaoh can be responsible for that. If you want to prepare your hearts for that, read in Romans chapter 9 the account there. I believe that Romans 9 is the best commentary that you're going to find on Exodus chapter 9. So take a moment and look at that and prepare your hearts for that, and God willing, we'll look at that topic next time. Thank you for listening to this resource from twojourneys.org. Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build His kingdom. Only we ask that you do so for non-commercial purposes and in accordance with the copyright policy found at twojourneys.org. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God.